On this episode of the Scott Radley Show podcast, there are, as you know, as you've been hearing all week, cannabis stores popping up, illegal cannabis stores throughout the city of Hamilton, and nothing is being done about them. One city councillor posted a picture today of a brand new one that took over a Mexican restaurant. Why is nothing happening and what can be done about these? Also, the Ticat schedule came out for 2019 and guess what? Labor Day game is back at the time it's supposed to be. One in the afternoon. And you want to know something else? It's going to be an easy schedule. It's the year they win the Great Cup. Guaranteed. Maybe. Take a listen. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. This morning I'm on Twitter and all of a sudden this tweet pops up in front of me with a picture on it. And I got to tell you, it was kind of stunning to me. And maybe maybe it's not that way to you. Let me tell you what it is. It was from John Paul Danko, who's a new city councilor. We're going to bring him on in just a second. It's a photo that he has posted of what was a Mexican restaurant that is now very, very clearly an illegal cannabis store. Here's what he wrote. The new Mexican restaurant, which was a wonderful addition to our neighborhood, is now another illegal weed store. Opened this week. What do I tell the community? He's asking Hamilton police. Let me bring John Paul Danko, Councillor Ward 8, Councillor on the air. John Paul, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And Thanks welcome to the show. On. Yeah, first time to have you on. Welcome to council, you know, for better <laughs> or for worse. Going <laughs> <Run> right in. <laughs> yeah, jumping in with both feet. Well, here's the thing. We know that this was the talk this week. I mean, you guys spent hours, I mean, probably mm-hmm. 10, 12 hours over the course of the week discussing this. Mm-hmm. And when I saw your tweet today, what really stood out to me is the absolute shamelessness, I guess, for lack of a better word, of the owners. I mean, this is a building that now has two gigantic red and white signs and probably a third that I can't see based on where the picture is taken from with cannabis marijuana leaves. It says right on the front, cannabis dispensary. Maybe I'm naive, but this just really stunned me that people would be this forthright and this open and this willing to just say, huh, whatever, stop us if you want. Exactly. And and I think that sentiment that you just outlined is uh, what I'm hearing from residents every day. And people just can't believe that these illegal, and they are illegal, dispensaries are this brazen with um, what seems to be minimal, if any, consequences. Yeah, because there are some places that I have driven by that uh, it's been understated, let's say. You can, if you stop and look, you could see what it is, but... This place just appears to be flaunting it. I mean, to the point where it would be almost impossible to walk by this place and not notice it. No, you certainly can't miss it, and and I think that's the point. Uh, um, and you know, it's it's on a main street. It's in a commercial district, and it's you know, it's a good area for retail or a restaurant or whatever. But it's just the fact that, I mean, I can count maybe 10 within a pretty short drive on Upper James and in the area. And it, it, it's just that brazen nature of it that really, really frustrates people. And, uh, you know, I'm frustrated as a citizen that lives here that's around the corner from me. And as a counselor, um, you know, the, the question that I asked, what do I tell people? And I, I think that's, it's an honest question. How are these illegal dispensaries um, still there? Well, let's let's jump into that for a second, because this did come up at council meeting this week, but mm-hmm. for people who weren't paying attention to council, and not everybody had eight hours <laughs> to spend watching the whole thing, 
This was raised by police because people will say, look, it's obviously an illegal operating dispensary. Why are the police not swooping in? They don't have to do a lot of investigating. It's right there. Take a second and explain what you heard about why police won't do that. Well, I think police are doing the best that they can with the resources that they have. And I have to be, you know, a little bit cautious here that I'm not criticizing the police. I'm not criticizing bylaw. They are in a very difficult position, right? We're in an evolving um, regulatory period right now. There's a bunch of charges that police have filed. Um, Before October 17th, my understanding was the courts um, basically just handed out peace bonds, which is you know, not even a slap on the wrist. Um, Since October 17th, when uh, cannabis was, um, you know, the retail was going to be rolled out and the province came in with new regulations, that was, by the way, specifically designed to get rid of the illegal storefronts. Um, Police have been raiding these storefronts. They have been laying charges. um, But my understanding from them is the challenge is none of these new charges have made it through the courts yet. So, um, there's an unknown there of will the charges uh, be you know, enforced by the courts? What will the penalties actually be? And um, I think, you know, like I said, we're in this sort of period of flux right now where everybody's trying to figure out what we can do, what works, and what will be effective. Well, it also came up, I think, if I'm correct, that the police were pointing to the fact that this is very costly for them. Mm-hmm. There, there's, there's a, this is a resource issue and not just manpower or woman power. There's, a, there's an actual f- financial cost to the police to do this. Yeah, and there was um, some back and forth with the uh, representatives from the police at, and by law council trying to you know, put a number on it. And I think that that's one of the things that council asked um, police to come back with is some sort of um, a bit more firmer numbers on what the real cost is to policing these. Yeah, because once they closed them down, there was some question raised about are the police responsible to secure them and keep them secure? And if somebody were to break in and hurt themselves or something, are the police suddenly now responsible? I mean, it's a... It creates this situation that, I, frankly, I don't know of any other, I've not heard of any other case like this where the police are on the hook for what happens at a site after if, mm-hmm. if something happens. But, John Paul, the other thing that came up in council this week that I thought was stunning in these meetings, you had someone, I, she was a owner or operator, I think, of one of the dispensaries who stood up and started mentioning how much money, how lucrative these mm. places are, was the number like $85,000 a day, something like that, that they were bringing in or could bring in? $85,000 a day, that's right. Why in the world would you not open a dispensary and even if you have to throw up the signs and say, you want to charge me, heck, give me a twenty, give me a quarter million dollar fine, that's three days work, I don't care. And I, and I think that's exactly the business um, decision that the people that are opening these dispensaries are making. Um, you know, if the fine sticks and that's still an if, um, they can see it as a cost of business, which is, uh, you know, as, as a counselor, that's a major concern. And especially that we're having this problem with illegal dispensaries right in the middle of the discussion whether to opt in to legal. Um, because the big argument for bringing in legal um, dispensaries is that it will, you know, push out the illegal ones. But the problem with that argument now, uh, with the you know current provincial um, plan, is to only have 25 legal dispensaries province-wide, um, seven in the region that Hamilton is a part of. So likely, and how big? Sorry, to interrupt for a sec. How yeah. big is that region that we're talking about for those seven? 
that's they call it the West region. So that's Hamilton, Brantford, Kitchener, Waterloo, all that's of I mean, the, a huge um, area. It's a huge yeah, area. Yeah. So chances are we'll end up and I think there is a population factor there, so chances are we'll end up with two or three. But my concern is that two or three legal outlets are going to do very little to um, influence the illegal trade. I mean, it's just simply it's not enough um, volume to make any dent in the illegal market. Well, especially if you have to drive all the way across the city to find one. Exactly. Or take a bus or take whatever. Oh, maybe the LRT will get you there faster. Who knows? <laughs> maybe that'll be the new sales pitch for the LRT. Get you to the pot store faster. I don't know if that'd be a great marketing campaign or not. Maybe it puts a few people in the seats. The other thing, though, when you look at this picture, and people can go onto your Twitter, and, I, and they should to see what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. The sign is very clear, $5 grams of cannabis. Well, that's less than half, roughly half or less what you're paying right now if you order online. So even if you put legal stores elsewhere, I'm mm-hmm. a, I'm a consumer with limited resources or with a sense of finances of some kind. And I go, wait a second, I can go to the legal Ontario store or I can go next door to the one that's close and half the price. I know what I'm doing if I was a pot user. Yeah, and I don't think a lot of people realize that the legal stores are required to purchase wholesale from the Ontario Cannabis Store, which means, I mean, that's a great policy because it means the product is tracked. They're not allowed to repackage it, but it also means that the price, um, the wholesale price anyway, is controlled by the province, and I believe the retail price is also controlled. So, I mean, it's, you know, the, the black market tactics is, always been to undercut the legal product, which is why it's, um, why, why people end up going to black market. But, um, in this case, I mean, just, just having the advertised cost on the sign on the front of the building, I mean, just that is completely against all the regulations for the legal stores. And it's, um, this is the pot equivalent of buck a beer. Yeah, (laughs) it really is. Yeah, it does it, raise questions though, John Paul. It really does to me raise all kinds of questions about whether we keep hearing the, the utopian position on this is that when we legalize marijuana, the black market is going to disappear. We're going to just push it right into the shadows and it'll be gone. It, that, that seems to me to be hopelessly naive and hopelessly ridiculous. Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, I'm not in favor of prohibition. I'm, you know, I do believe in a legal regulated cannabis market. Uh, you know, I'm not a hardliner here, but I just I have a fundamental problem with the legal side of the industry, and uh, I don't see it going away anytime soon, whether we opt in or not. Yeah, and I don't know, and this is not a, I don't think this is a city council thing. I mean, even if city council mm-hmm. ordered police, and you're not in a position to do that, that's not your purview, but even if you were able to order the police to raid these places every single day, I still don't see the likelihood that it ends anything. I just don't. I, and, and that's not, and you're not able to do that anyway. So I really, this, this is to me is a, is a much bigger problem, but that clearly you as counselors and the rest of the city is facing because these places are, are everywhere. You took a picture just this morning of a brand new one. So you, you know, there's going to be more. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the frustration continues. John Paul Danko, he is the new counselor for Ward 8. Just so exciting to come in as a brand new counselor. You get this, you get the LRT file to jump <laughs> onto. You know, John Paul, by about January, you're going to be saying, can I go back to my old job yet? <laughs> no, probably not. John Paul Danko, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
We will uh, we'll we'll talk with John Paul again down the road. But no, I was I saw this tweet, and, and again, I would go if you're if you're on Twitter, if you have access to Twitter, go look it up. Just put in John Paul Danko's name; it'll come right up. The boldness with which the owners of this place have decided to sell their product. I, I mean, it is they may as well be having a band of naked tuba players out on the sidewalk to attract your attention. I mean, it is that obvious and nothing's done. Now, as I say, I didn't check by the end of the day. Maybe the police have gone and raided this place. I don't know. Could have happened, but I, considering how many of them are around town and how many of them are not being shut down, I kind of doubt it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. What does Stomp and Tom Connors... Gordy Howe, Bobby Hall, and Maurice Richard all have in common now. None of them have their names on the Stanley Cup. That's true. I mean, they did, everyone but Stomp and Tom. The other three, who are three of the greatest players in NHL history, had their names on the Cup. They all won the Stanley Cup. But that ring that had all their names on it has now been removed. Removed to make room for the next crop of people to come along who will someday maybe be legends. We don't know, but that is, this is what happens in the NHL. The cup can't get bigger. So names come off and some of the greats have been removed. They've been on there for close to 65 years, but now they are gone. Let me bring in Rick Zamprin. You know, Rick Zamprin, he was just on the air here. I don't even think he made it out of the front lobby yet before we called him. Uh, he, uh, he wrote a great piece, a great blog piece about it at 900 CHML yesterday. Rick, thanks for coming right back on the air just after you finish. Thanks for doing this. No problem. Just pulled in the driveway. Well, that's good because we don't want you a few days before Christmas to get that driving and talking and texting and all the rest of that ticket. That would really stink. No, no. Your wife would probably not be happy with... Uh, <laughs> your, your present would be going back to pay for that ticket. Yeah, I would get coal in the stocking. <laughs> that's true. Uh, you know, we know this happens. We know that they have to make room on the cup for the new names and they can't make, they can't continue to make the cup longer and longer. People's arms can only stretch so far to lift it overhead. (laughs) Although that would be funny to see them try and figure that out. But it is kind of sad when you start seeing the names that were for you and I of our age. Now, some people are older, some are younger, but for our age, the very beginnings of our hockey watching life now fall off the cup. Yeah, and you know what? Especially, in, and you mentioned the blog uh, today at 900CHML.com, especially if you're a Leafs fan, because, you know, in 12 years' time, the Maple Leafs, if they don't win a cup between now and 2030, their name, uh, their team, will no longer appear on the cup. And that's that's true for a lot of the guys who have hoisted the cup above their heads or have had their picture taken with it after winning the championship, uh, because, you know, so uh, a certain amount of years go by, uh, their name falls off the cup because, as you, could, as you said, you can only make the cup, uh, you know, its, it's current shape. And, you know, for those fans, and, and yeah, you can still go to the Hockey Hall of Fame and look at the band. Yeah, they don't throw it out. Once, yeah, it's not like, okay, you know, this one's done, uh, let's chuck it. <laughs> they're, still, they're still on display, they're still shiny, all the names are still on it, nothing has really changed, just it's come off uh, that uh, rung of the cup, so to speak. So, uh, you know, for, for fans of a certain vintage, when you go to look at the cup and, and you're, you're trying to find a name or a team uh, that you cheered for in years gone by, uh, sometimes it's not going to be there. And uh, there, there's going to come a, a point in time, not in, in the too distant future, that the Leafs will not be on the cup, should they not win in the next dozen years. And that would be very sad for all the Leaf fans around here, I grant you. On the flip side, I can't help but think that that would in all, in some way almost be a 
fitting penalty for an organization that has just basically taken people's money for 50 years with few exceptions and done very little to try and get back to that spot. I mean, I don't want to be dumping on Leaf fans. That's not it at all. It's the team. The team, I think, has taken advantage of its fan base for so long that it would almost be fitting if that happened. Well, yeah, certainly in the Harold Ballard days. And, you know, there there were some really dark years, dark decades uh, when Ballard owned the team because, uh, you know, he he didn't want to spend money on, you know, the best talent or the top players or, you know, beef up uh, the, the scouting departments. He basically knew that, you know, being the owner of the Toronto Maple Leafs was uh, basically a license to print money. Fans would come out, win, lose, or at that point in time, draw. Uh, and they would continue to buy jerseys and merchandise and uh, spend money to park around the arena and, and nowadays, you know, it's it's very much different. There is, you know, a, a commitment to uh, winning a championship. Obviously, they're no closer uh, today than they were, you know, uh, 51 years ago because they've never made it to a final since winning in 1967. But I think the commitment there is to, uh, you know, do their analytics, which is, you know, the big thing in today's NHL, uh, beef up their scouting department, scour the world for the top talent, uh, you know, dole out some mega contracts as we saw last summer for John Tavares. So the commitment's there. You know, it's a much different organization now than it was during the Ballard years. But still, yes, I guess you, uh, I get your point. You know, there, there was decades where this team just uh, grabbed from its fan base's pockets and kind of, uh, you know, grinned in the corner as it was counting its millions. There was a reason that Maple Leaf Gardens was known as the Carlton Street cash box. And, you know, and it yeah. was... There didn't seem to be that desire or that burning desire, I guess, would be. I mean, I think there was desire, certainly among the players, but not among the ownership. There never seemed to be that need to do anything other than take money. So uh, it, it does make me, though, when you when you see that this ring is being taken off, and again, it happens every 12 years, I think it is now. Yeah. It does make me wonder if the players whose names are on there are bothered by this. And, and if it does, the guys that seems to me that probably it would have the most impact on is not the Gordy Howes and the Bobby Hulls and the Maurice Richards, because everybody knows they won the Stanley Cup. They don't, they don't have a worry that their legacy or their reputation or their name is going to fade. It's the third-line players who maybe that was their one thing, their one claim to fame that their name was on the Cup. I, I would think it would that would be where it would hurt. I think so, too. And you mentioned, you know, those guys like the Maurice Richards or the Henri Richards, you know, guys who have multiple cups, Jean Beliveau. I mean, you can basically mention any Montreal Canadiens great and and their name is on the cup uh, a few dozen times. Uh, And but those guys who won one cup, who were fortunate enough to be on, whether it was one of those Montreal teams or a team that just managed to, uh, you know, squeak out a, a, a Stanley Cup championship. That's the only time their name is ever going to appear on the Cup. So when that run comes off, yeah, there's got to be a feeling of, I don't know if disappointment is the word, but certainly, uh, you know, that it, it loses a little bit of its luster because come playoff time, come, you know, nowadays in June, when the Cup is raised uh, with the championship team, uh, winning the the ultimate series, uh, you know the, the the sense that their name is not on that cup at that moment when you know the the next or the latest team is celebrating its its uh, you know championship season. Uh, there's there's got to be a feeling of uh, you know it should be it should be there. But you know as we've said, this cup can't be you know ten feet tall because it would be <laughs> yeah make it into <laughs> a smart car. Yeah, exactly. We, take every every player on the team to waste it. We got to go to a quick break, but just to that point, there was a, a website that I saw that had a, a a picture that went with this to illustrate it. It was from the 1954 Stanley Cup champion Detroit Red Wings, and the names that I can read 
Earl Reibel, Terry Sawchuk, Vic Stasiak, Bob Goldham, Gordy Howe, Tony Leswick. Probably two or three of those everybody's going to remember. The others? Probably not. Them coming off the cup, I'm sure, stings a little bit, if they're still alive even. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, by the way, Rick, you you had a, a good day today here at the office. I, I mean, I don't know what was going on on the air, but this place is just laden with food. Well, I snapped my fingers. And, oh, uh, man. <laughs> Whatever was happening, there were sandwiches, there was pizza, there was a... Uh, a delicious, uh, ironically though, almost untouched by some people. I guess the radio people like the junk food. There was this beautiful fruit bouquet with with uh, melon and wa- honeydew and all that kind of stuff, which is, it's, I think it's been sitting out for most of the day because it now has a, it's really delicious inside once you get past the hard exterior <laughs> crunchy <laughs> coating. I've had a few pieces. I hope my stomach's going to last for the rest of the yeah. show. But uh, let's get to uh, the other news from today which is the CFL unveiled its or released its schedule, which, by the way, isn't this really early for them? Usually they've gotten yeah. really late in recent years. Yeah, it's, it's usually uh, January. Uh, At least. Even as, as late as February, yeah. And uh, I, I recall, man, maybe 10, 12 years ago, it was into March, which is very late, especially for teams that are planning you know, their season right. that use, you know, multiple facility or facilities that host multiple events like concerts and the like. So, yeah, uh, it's nice to see before Christmas the, the schedule come up. Well, if the Ticats dare to complain about anything, they are out of their minds. Because I look at this schedule and I think they got, they couldn't have got anything more from their schedule than what they got. And let's start with Labor Day because I have long thought that it is goofy that the Ticats don't play their Labor Day game in the afternoon, specifically at 1 in the afternoon. Everyone can then get home after the game, can get on with getting ready for the kids for school or getting ready for work or whatever. They don't drink for 17 hours leading up to the game. Uh, And they're back to that now. They've got the 1 o'clock start. Seems to me to be perfect. It's the way it should be. I love the 1 p.m. start. It it reeks of nostalgia, uh, tradition. Uh, I'm sure the TV folks wanted a a primetime event, but... Uh, listen, this is this is a, a holiday in which the next day kids are going to school. We know that a lot of kids go to Ticats games with their parents. And in the last few years, with 6.30 starts, they've had to leave by halftime because, you know, it's getting late in the day. First day of school is the next day. 1 p.m. is perfect. Hats off to the CFL for finally doing this. Yeah, Again. and two years ago, it was the Labor Day game that had uh, Monsoon Matilda, whatever right. it was. And there was about seven people left in the stands because it was a late game. It was a night game. And then it was the huge lightning and weather delay. And then by the time they played it, there was nobody there. So at least even if there's a weather delay, you would assume there will be an audience for this one. Exactly. And, you know, I like the fact, too, that, uh, you know, we're talking the the first weekend of September. Uh, the weather is still warm. So, you know, with a 630 start, as you mentioned, you know, uh, guys and gals are out tailgating all day. And, you know, that's a concern, especially for Hamilton police, for people who uh, are not responsible behind the wheel. So I think, uh, you know, putting it at a, at a 1 p.m. start really negates a lot of that. I don't think we've had that many problems recently, but I do recall previous years, one year where someone shimmied up the goalpost and was hanging by the field goal flag that being chased by police. That was one of them. And one where an Argo and Ticat fan got in a fight and one bit the other's ear off outside Iverwin. I can't remember which one it was. Better to, you know, they're still going to drink. People are still going to have a good time and they're going to have their drinks, but we don't need to give them, as I say, like an eight or nine hour lead time. Yeah. 
And it's, uh, you know, if, if the Ticats had one thing to complain about on this schedule, and again, I agree with you, they shouldn't have many complaints, if at all, but it is the three games following Labor Day. They have a bye after Labor Day, which is quite unusual, but then the three games after that, they're all on the road. So this is back-to-back-to-back road games. Not only that, they're back-to-back-to-back against three Western opponents. Not mm-hmm. only that, one of those Western opponents they haven't beaten since God was a boy. That's the Calgary Stampeders. They haven't beaten them since 2011. So they're at Calgary, at Edmonton, at Winnipeg. That is a murderer's row in this Ticats schedule. However, and I agree with you, but... Yes. The last number of years, it seems, and I didn't go back and check the last four, five, six years to check what I'm going to say here, but I believe it to be correct. It seems the last number of years, they've started their season with a run like that. I think this last year they had three of their first four or four of their first four against Western teams. And Rick, how many years has it been now that we, we look at the schedule when July, early August rolls around and the Ticats are one and four or something like that, and they've had brutal games. They've got an easy start to the schedule this year. Uh, agreed. They they will host actually the first game of the CFL season at home against Saskatchewan. That won't you know, be easy, a win- but a winnable game. Yeah, yeah but not Chris easy. Jones, yeah, Chris Jones is going to have his guys rolling. This is going to be Orlando Steinauer's first regular season game as head coach. But after that, uh, it it kind of gets marshmallowy with Toronto, Montreal, and Montreal in a home and home, and then hosting Calgary, which is going to be tough. But still, those three games after Saskatchewan all winnable. This team could be three and one out of the gate. And when was the last time that happened? Oof. I can't remember. Yeah, we're talking a few years ago. And then, at, <laughs> and you talk about the very difficult middle, which I grant you, that is absolutely true. But then their last two or three games are back to the Toronto-Montreal thing where you can yeah. now roll into the playoffs if you need some wins or you can do what some teams have done and potentially with the schedule they have, you may be able to sit some guys in that last week, which can be an advantage to you. I, I, I say I don't think that there could be a thing this team would complain about. Yeah, you know what? I really like the last month of the season. You know, they, they host Edmonton, they got a bye week, and then they got three more games left. They're they're hosting Ottawa, they're at Montreal, then they host Toronto to close out the season. That, as you said, could be a stretch where they're trying to clinch a playoff spot or a division title, or you know they've done so well, uh, you know, previously in, in in the weeks in advance of this last month that they're just kind of resting guys and, and let's, you know, hope for their sake that's the case. And, and for their fans, they can kind of re- relax and, uh, you know, look forward to the playoffs. But as we know, you know, this team has been around 500 or, yep, or always. well below 500 <laughs> over the last number of decades. Uh, well, So you know what's going to happen now. we got to run, but you know what's going to happen now. Orlando Steinauer, Orlando Steinauer is going to have that great start because the schedule and everyone's going to go, he is the coach we've been waiting for. See, yeah. well, this is the, and, and it may be partly that, but the schedule may also factor in. Regardless, got to run. Rick, thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. I know you had a full day. Thanks for jumping in. Anytime. Take care. You can go find the schedule, ticats.ca, cfl.ca, whatever you want. Uh, but it is, it is a beaut for the Ticats this year. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. It is time for something we haven't done all week, but we do at least once every week. And that is a little something we call Will's Story of the Day. Will is the guy on the other side of the glass. He's playing the music and keeping us on the air. I am going to give Will a rundown of three unusual stories from around the world and using whatever method of choosing, whatever criteria, whatever rating system he wishes he will choose at the end which one is his story of the day feel free to play along at home wager if you must here we go story number one comes to us and it fits in with the song we were just playing from ccr coming in yeah you comes scared to us me scott <laughs> from greenup kentucky 
or Green Up, Kentucky, but I think it's probably pronounced Green Up, Kentucky. So there's this inmate who's on his way to jail. And as he's being driven there, he is complaining that his handcuffs are way too tight, cutting off the circulation. And so the kindly corrections officer or whomever was transporting him to jail decides, you know, we're in the Christmas season. We got to be nice. So he stops to loosen the guy's handcuffs a little so that he is able to not have the circulation gone to his hands. Well, of course, predictably, this is why you don't do this for prisoners. Predictably, the guy bolts and takes off and is gone into the woods and eventually makes his way to a highway where he is picked up by a hitchhiker as he makes his escape. End of story. Not exactly, because the guy who picked up the hitchhiker was a corrections officer (laughs) on his way to work in the jail and noticed one of the dangling handcuffs, which would seem to be a bit of a giveaway. Yeah, yeah, clue. I mean, I know it could be a fashion statement, it could be a bracelet, but I think a corrections officer would understand what a real handcuff looks like. Was he also wearing some sort of orange onesie, I didn't know. I didn't say that. It's just the handcuffs. But anyway, the guy thought he was getting a ride to freedom, and instead the guy just drove him right back to the jail (laughs) where he was put back in lockup, I assume. But, you know, if you're going to, if you're listening from a prison and you're going to make an escape plan, the only one that can possibly work is the one from Shawshank Redemption. So study that one and use that one to get away. All the rest, you end up getting caught. All right, story number two comes to us from Montana. Big sky country. You know what they have in Montana, apparently? What some people think exists in Montana? Sasquatch. Oh, yes. There are are people who believe that that Montana is a hotbed for Sasquatch. Now, I always question, we've had Sasquatch experts on this show before. I always question the thing because surely at some point with all the modern technology that exists, if Sasquatch were out there, we would have had some stronger evidence than we do. Nonetheless, this guy is out walking in the woods, just having a nice stroll through the woods. Not fleeing from a corrections officer. Not fleeing from a crate, just having a nice walk in the woods. All of a sudden, just about, he felt about three feet away, a bullet sailed by him on his left. And then then by him on his right. A hunter thought he was a Sasquatch. (laughs) Now, I don't know how ugly this guy is or how hairy he is or how tall he is or what his gait is that you would have thought that this guy was a Sasquatch. It is not complimentary. (laughs) It would not. No. If you're going to fill out a Tinder form, I would think has been confused for Sasquatch is probably (laughs) not landing you a lot of dates. Now, maybe a niche audience, but that's a whole (laughs) other thing. (laughs) Uh, Thankfully... He, this is all according to the Idaho Statesman, the newspaper, apparently, thankfully he dodged all the bullets or they all missed him. So thankfully the guy, the Sasquatch hunters were really bad aimers as well. So he was able to dive behind a tree and start screaming. (laughs) I I don't know what he would have yelled because surely he doesn't know that he's being confused with a Sasquatch. So he's not yelling, I'm not a Sasquatch, but maybe the guy shooting at him when he starts hearing English language coming goes, oh. Maybe that's not a Bigfoot. Yeah. Maybe I aim at something else. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. Sasquatches are wily. Thankfully, everybody was okay. Doesn't say if the uh, person, because the guy took off, it doesn't say if anybody was charged for this. But again, you know, it's one thing to survive, but to have been confused with a Sasquatch is not a good thing. All right, story number three, because we're short on time. From Montreal, Canada. Woohoo. Inspectors 
Civic inspectors show up at a play, at a theatrical production in Quebec City last week. And um, when they got there, there was trouble because there was a man on stage dressed in a full-size human costume in the form of a penis. (laughs) A six-foot-four unit. Okay. That was not the problem, however. A man being dressed as a Johnson on stage was not the issue. The issue was that during the play, he lit up a cigarette on stage. (laughs) That got him a $500 citation. So you can walk around Quebec City all you want as a giant, over six foot tall, naked piece of manhood, and there is no problem. But if you happen to light up a cigarette, now, if, you've, if you're a smoking wiener, you are now a big, big problem to the folks in Quebec City. So, Will, is the story of the day today, the inmate who got a ride to freedom with a corrections officer, is it the guy shooting at the alleged Sasquatch who wasn't, or is it the smoking thing? I think Smoking Wiener is a good band name, but I'm going to have to go with the O. Henry story that is the dude running away from a corrections officer and getting picked up by another. I do like the name Smoking Wiener for a band. It has to be a certain type of band, though. I'm not really sure. We'll have to figure out. Maybe country. Some sort of country. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.